Hello, this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. Expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're talking about the workplace, how to give the perfect job interview, what to do when you make a mistake at work, and who makes for a good manager. Someone that pays me a lot, but basically leaves me alone. <laughs> Let's get on with the show. Richard, what is the worst job interview you've ever had? Well, I've never... I've only had, had job. one job. I've never, well, I've, I kind of only had one job, which is the University of Hertfordshire. I've been there a very long time, 30 years. No, you worked at a supermarket. Oh, that's going all the way back. That's true. I don't think they interviewed me for that. I think they uh, they, they just sat me down and showed me how to use the till. Okay. Um, yeah, I can't believe You weren't even looking for a job. You just No, I just to went in to get some bacon. Roll. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Absolutely. How many job interviews have you had? Very few. I had a chat with someone that I realised halfway through... You know, when someone says, oh, yeah, come and have a chat. We should have a coffee. And then I realised that it was something I should have prepared for, whereas I was literally expecting a coffee and a chat. And actually, I probably would have got a job if I'd thought that what that code meant was come and talk to me about your vision for making award-winning radio. So you thought you were just turning up for a chat and actually it was a job interview. Yes. I mean, not only that, I just didn't realise until halfway through it. I mean, they got the real me. Yes, which is... Well, <laughs> which not... is not what they were looking for at that moment. <laughs> well, lots of people have job interviews and there's been lots of psychology about mm-hmm. the uh, the best way of trying to deal with them. We have a question here about job interviews from Lumbani and she asks, how important are technical skills versus interpersonal skills in an interview? And that gets us to the issue straight away, which is what do people actually look for versus what they say they look for in an interview? So Chad Higgins and uh, Timothy Judge have looked at this. They evaluated a whole group of students on all different personality measures and uh, ability and skill sets and so on. Then those students went out to the real world and tried to get a job. The psychologist then got in touch with the interviewers and said, how did the interview go and how did you evaluate the candidates and so on? And what that allowed them to do is find the factors that actually influenced the interviewers rather than the factors that the interviewers said influenced the interviewers. Okay. And it comes down, or came down, to one word, which is one of my favourite words, which is... Likeability. Okay. Uh, So likeability is incredibly important and yet kind of overlooked. So we talk about skill sets and ability to handle data or write reports or whatever it is. But actually what influences interviewers is often, is this a likeable candidate? Is this somebody that's going to fit in with the team? And most important of all, is this somebody I'd like to work with? Because lots of interviewers will be working with that person. And we don't like to be around dislikable people. So back in the days when I was applying for actual real jobs in actual real companies, mm. and I'd just left university, so I, was, I had nothing to put on the CV, what I, what I put down was that I'd won an award for service to the life and community of the school. 
And right. I and I said, basically, this means I'm a good person to be stuck in a lift or an office with, which right. is exactly what it meant. I, okay. You know, it wasn't that I was the fastest runner or I didn't win the most academic. I won, yes. you know, good person to have about. Be stuck in a lift with, yeah. yes. And that got me through to the, the Got you three the jobs, round. all of which were involving being stuck in a lift. <laughs> lift. We need somebody. Lift maintenance, that's what they offered me. So it's exactly that. Um, and of course, Carnegie, I can get back to Dale Carnegie, has got all sorts of ways of, of making people like, like you. Making people like you. And, and one of his ways is about being genuinely interested in others and asking questions about them and saying, you know, asking questions about the organization and saying what you genuinely like. And genuinely is a very important word in, in the, the world of Carnegie. In other words, you're not faking it. You genuinely like about the interviewers or you genuinely like about the organization. Often those are the things that really persuaded an interview. So surely it depends what kind of job you're going through for though. So I can imagine most jobs where you sit in an office where with some other people and you tap away at a keyboard, it's your likability that's your ability to get on with other people that's important. Whereas if you're a structural engineer, it's how good are you at building things that don't fall down? Yes, but I think the assumption is there's probably quite a few people that are good at building things that don't fall down. And so in a Playing field some, of them, like, some of them are a nightmare. Uh, that's right. Okay. And, and the fact is that in pretty much any job, you've got to work with other people. And those people are often the people that are on the panel choosing you. And so they're thinking, often unconsciously, because they'll tell you it's all about skill set and so on. But what they're thinking is, is this the sort of person I want to work with? Is this going to be a difficult person? Are they going to turn up at time on time? Are they going to do their job? Are they going to be honest about failure and, and so on? And those are the things which actually guide decisions according to the research but dale carnegie says that you can kind of tweak it oh yeah totally but but it's not about faking it in that sense it's about you know when you find something you genuinely like about an organization or individual you mention it it's about smiling it's about remembering people's names it's all these things um which which makes you more likable but if you are an asshole <laughs> yeah, within psychology we haven't got that as a category but okay. i know what you mean what's the technical term for that um, I guess it would be low agreeableness. Okay, thank you. If you score highly on low agreeableness yes. and have unlikable characteristics, yes. is it a case of just finding a profession full of other people who appreciate those characteristics? Well, it might find it, you might be finding a job where that's an important part of the skill set, um, or it may be that you'll be working on your own rather than part of a team would be my guess. Okay, yes. Yeah. So that's that's some of the research into interviews. The other is when you mention things that are not so great on your CV. Yes. And this work goes way back um, to the 1970s, Edward Jones and colleagues. And this gets into, I see some fairly basic memory work called the primacy and recency effect. So if you give somebody a list of anything, words, numbers, they tend to remember the ones at the beginning and the ones at the end, the ones in the middle tend to be forgotten. So when it comes to an interview, um, exactly the same, uh, interviewers tend to base their judgment on the information at the beginning, information at the end. So if you've got some perhaps not so good stuff in your CV, you could try and bury it in the middle. But the other possibility is that you either put it first or last. And this is what the researchers has looked at. Are you better to open with uh, something which isn't so great or are you better closing with it? 
And the studies, the results of the studies are actually fairly clear, which is that if you've got something which is a problematic issue on your CV, you're best off open with it. Okay. You're best off kind of going, right, this is problem Because it comes across as very honest. Okay. Rather than them finding it out halfway through the interview, where it looks like you may have been trying to conceal it. Okay. So you kind of say, look, I... In 2015, I did burn down my employer's building and spent six months in prison for it. But yes. since then... Since then, I'm a, I'm a changed person. Yeah. But you can see why that's better yeah. than finding it out right at the end of the yeah. interview. Just one and final thing. And then I burnt it down. That's right. Okay, yeah. So the, with the original studies, they're looking at somebody who said they'd been caught cheating and expelled from school. And it turned out that when they opened with that and just said, let's just get it out of the way, yeah. then that was seen as a, a much more positive thing than, than closing with it. Okay. So I've done some of the primacy and recency stuff that we did. Uh, these were mass experiments we did on the public, both the BBC and the Daily Telegraph. So we had somebody applying for a job as a, I think, to work in the ambulance service. And they had part of their background that was a little bit, problematic and part that was a bit more positive. And there are, at least there were all those years ago, 13 transmitters across the UK. The BBC transmit on 13 transmitters. They did then anyway, they weren't now. So we made two programmes uh, for Tomorrow's World, which was the, the sort of flagship science programme. And one of the programmes, uh, the interview was shown one way round with the negative information first. And the other programme, it was shown with the negative information last. And by feeding out different programmes to different transmitters, it meant you could show half the country the interview in one order and the other half in the other order. And then you gave people different phone numbers and that meant you could work out the impact and the order or whether or not they give the person the job. So it was it was quite a logistical exercise. Yeah, that's impressive. And we got exactly the results they did in the nineteen seventies. That that when you get that in for the bad information out the way first of all, people are far more positive about the candidate. So it's quite a fun thing to do. You're listening to Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. And this episode, we're talking about the workplace. And if you want us to keep doing this, we need your help and support. Please review us and share episodes with your friends. And please subscribe too. It helps other people to find us. Let's assume you've got the job. Yeah. And you now have the complex business of actually turning up to the job, yes. interacting with other humans, maybe colleagues or clients. We've had a question from Margot about M&Ms and sadly not the chocolates. She says, I work in a law firm and we often talk about the two biggest barriers to productivity, managers and meetings. So how to navigate those? Yeah, managers, we could talk a little bit later on. Meetings are really interesting. And no, they're not. They're just not. <laughs> from a psychological point of view. One of my favourites, uh, I went to an organisation years ago, and, well, first of all, they initially banned all meetings, Yeah, which is kind of interesting. Their productivity went up. But the second thing they did, and there's been some research into this, is only have standing meetings. You weren't allowed to sit down. Don't unless get comfortable. Was, yeah, yeah, that makes unless sense. Unless there's a medical sense. reason why you had to sit down, but otherwise. And of course, that meant that all the meetings were much, much shorter and actually uh, productivity stayed the same, but they weren't all being trapped in meetings all the time. So that's kind of interesting. Um, another thing which people worry about, and this is true of job interviews as well, is kind of messing up in front of their colleagues, either during the interview or when you're in a, a meeting. 
And there's been some lovely research on it by Thomas Gilovich, a very well-known psychologist. And what he did, so you bring together a group of students and then you arrange for one student to arrive late. And that student comes in, they haven't met the other students yet. And you say, would you mind putting on this particular T-shirt? And they needed to find a T-shirt that would be perceived as embarrassing. And so I think I think this is harsh, uh, but they went with a T-shirt with a huge picture of Barry Manilow. Oh, no, no, no. That's a winner with millennials. See, I, see, I think times have changed. Yeah, absolutely. The and, man's an icon. Yes, but when this study was carried out, apparently it was embarrassing to have a big picture of Barry Manilow on a T-shirt. Fair enough. So they put the Barry Manilow T-shirt on. They go in and join the other students. Apparently they're embarrassed about their T-shirt and there's discussion about something. Then they leave and the the T-shirt wearing student is asked, how many people in the group do you think spotted the T-shirt? And then you can go to the group and say, how many of you spotted the T-shirt? And what you find is the person wearing the embarrassing T-shirt massively overestimates the number of people that spotted it. So they might come back and say, I bet half the group and actually it was about a quarter of the group. And this is known as the spotlight effect that we are focusing on ourselves all of the time. And so we, when we mess up, we think, oh my goodness, I bet everyone noticed that. And I bet, oh my goodness, it's so embarrassing. I can't go to work the next day or I've got to apologize or whatever it is. But actually, probably people perhaps didn't notice it or didn't think so much about it. And often when I've been giving talks and messed up, there's, there's a part you think, oh my goodness. And the truth is, if you just carry on and pretend it didn't matter, you normally get away with it. There's a thing about our working memory is kind of like a box of eggs. And so we can only hold, I don't know, eight things in our heads at any particular time. And if one of those things is, oh God, everyone's noticing that I'm wearing a Barry Manilow t-shirt, mm-hmm. that leaves you less space for concentrating on the other things. Like, right, yes. I'm going to solve this maths problem and impress everyone. Yes. Because of the Barry Manilow t-shirt. Yes, yeah, so, so the, the fear and the worry and the embarrassment then becomes quite crippling yep. for people. I mean, what's true about the spotlight effect is the opposite is true. If you do really well, you think, oh, everyone's going to think, what a genius. That's amazing. <laughs> Actually, I don't notice that either. They hadn't noticed. <laughs> no idea. You are irrelevant. That's what. That's our take home. No one's paying attention to you. It's like my mum always said, no one's looking. Yes. Uh, so that's the spotlight effect, which is quite nice if you have messed up. Also, there's some lovely uh, work out of the University of California where they looked at the positioning of people and how that then relates to success, positioning within a group, physical positioning. Around a table. Around a table, or yes, essentially. So first of all, they looked at the Weakest Link TV show. Mm -hmm. And what happens there, I don't know if you remember it, but there's a sort of semicircle of people. Yeah. And apparently, the way in which it works in the production of that show, people are randomly assigned to one of the positions on the semicircle. But they then vote each other off. Has someone looked at the patterns? Yes. I love psychology for doing this. So they sat through lots of these shows. And what they're interested in is the success of the person who's in the middle of the group Mm. versus those that are at the extremes. Here are the stats. So if you're in a central position, the chances of reaching a final round, 42%. The chances of winning the game, 45%. (gasps) If you're in an extreme position, chances of getting to the final round, 17%, massive drop. Chances of winning the whole thing, just 10%. Wow. And that, that was randomly, just the position you're in 
influences how other people see you and whether you get voted off or not. That's extraordinary. And so they did the same sort of thing with group photographs and people in meetings, that if you're at the centre of the group, you're perceived as more charismatic and uh, able and bright and all those things. But if you're at the edge of the group, you're not perceived in that way. That makes sense. It does make sense. I wonder how how you can get around that if you're... Just push your way into the middle. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, I meant for... I was thinking of if you're designing game show floor spaces. I suppose you could have everyone sitting in a circle. Yeah. But what's interesting about the idea, and I used to talk about this when I gave talks about success, was to ask people to look at their Facebook pictures. Whenever there's a group of you, where are you in the group? Are you consistently in the middle or are you consistently on the edge of the group? Shove yourself into the middle. Is yes. that what you're saying? Elbow yourself in. Elbow. Push everyone else out. <laughs> Make certain you get in the middle there. And there's other work which has looked at the impact of the shape of the table on group decision making. So again, it's something we don't really think about. You know, you just say, oh, just arrange the tables or chairs. If you put people around a round table, they're more likely to cooperate and collaborate with one another. Put them into an L-shaped table or a square one. They're more likely to be independent, uh, less empathic and to challenge groupthink. That's amazing. So what's lovely about that is that you can arrange your tables to suit the sort of thinking patterns you want. Yeah. Or if you want people to switch mindsets, you just switch rooms with different tables. So you need what you need is a kind of rectangular table with flaps that turn it into a round table. And then just at a certain point in the meeting, just to put the flaps down. Yes. And you've changed the mindset. Absolutely. It could be like a remote controlled changeable table. That would be amazing. So I've noticed when you have a group meeting and you've got a rectangular table, people don't like sitting at the ends. No, they, they, the, the most powerful position of decision making is in the middle of a long side. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the, that, that's the place where, quote, the most powerful people like to be. Oh, that makes sense. Now I look at pictures of the cabinet. Yes. It's always in the middle of the long side. Okay. Well, the, the other thing which I've got, I've got a real thing about is, is how comfy the chairs are. The yeah. number of brainstorming meetings I've been at where the chairs are uncomfortable. And uncomfortable chairs, you never have a good idea. There's always a hardness to everything. And there's a hardness to the discussion. There's not a collaboration. It's when you sink into comfortable chairs that people start to think about the group and have fun and they're just in a better mood. I think chairs really, really matter. So you're saying there's a sweet spot because when you have the meetings and you don't want people to waffle on. Yeah. You actually want people to be slightly uncomfortable so that they get to the point. Yes, I think fast food restaurants do that, don't they? They, they actually design chairs and tables. That are you, a bit hard. A bit hard so you don't sit in there all day. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's all horses for courses. So it depends what sorts of meetings you want. I don't know what the outcome would be. But if you want a quick decision and a quick rational decision, you want people standing up or in hard tables and chairs, particularly square ones. So... Can we move on to the other M? We've talked about meetings. Can we talk about managers? Because we've had another question from Lombani on this. Can any good manager thrive in any given industry, regardless of their technical competence within that field? So is being a good manager the same as being a people person? Well, there's two questions there. I think the answer to the first one is probably yes. I, I think that good managers do thrive pretty much in any environment. With their people people, as it were, does depend 
on what you mean by being a people person. Okay, yeah. It, it doesn't mean that you're always giving to other people and always friendly and, and so on. So in terms of some of the traits of a good manager, autonomy is really important, that you're not micromanaging, that you're letting people get on with it. And of course, you saw that with the Apollo program, uh, where Chris Craft was in charge of the whole thing, just said to these young people, you, it's your responsibility. Go to the moon. Go to the moon now. Yeah. Uh, and, and so on. So, so autonomy, incredibly uh, important. Uh, connecting with people, being available is, is really important in terms of a manager. And so there are some managers that will work just in the morning, in the afternoon, they just make themselves available on the end of a phone line for anybody who wants to call them uh, in the team. That's a really popular way of, uh, of working. But the other thing, again, touched on it with Kennedy and Apollo, is communicating to the team the intrinsic motivation. Why are they doing what they're doing? Bad managers focus on what you're doing, good mm. managers on why we're doing it, understanding the purpose. And so I think those are the three things, the autonomy, um, that, that notion of, of being available, but also the intrinsic motivation, understanding the why. All those things tend to make for a really good manager. And is there general acceptance then that that's the kind of person who should be a manager? Because it feels like there should be a job interview to wheedle out that kind of person. Yeah, I mean, hard hard to get these things. And, and of course, there might be psychological consensus that that's much makes a good manager. It doesn't mean that those are the people are ending up managing because if you've got sharp elbows and good at pushing other people out of the way, often those are the people that end up on top of things. So it's a different thing between what the psychology would suggest and what happens in the actual workplace. I think you want somebody with that skill set that can actually you could parachute into any organisation yeah. and they can make those differences. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We've had a lot of questions about the open plan office and what it's like as a layout. This is a bugbear of mine okay? Uh, because I've worked in several places that have gone through that cycle where they, they've decided to take all the walls down. And it's funny, if you look at, I was looking at a property program recently where they get people who hate their house and they either fix the problem or they list it and mm. they sell it. And invariably what happens is these people have an open plan house and it's turned into a nightmare. And so what they do is they put the walls back up and you think, okay, this is what's going to happen in workplaces. Because I worked in a place with doors and walls and offices and it was great and you could concentrate. And then they went, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to take all the walls away and you're going to see each other and it's going to be really collaborative and everyone's just going to bond. We're going to be a great group. And what actually happened is you spent the whole time being interrupted. I timed it approximately every three minutes, which meant that productivity, and the stats back this up, productivity goes down two thirds when you take the walls down. So... You know, I'm looking forward to working in an office where they're like, hey, we've just come up with a revolutionary idea, walls and doors. Uh, well, your experiences pretty much map, map onto the research because decreased job satisfaction, reduced motivation, uh, lower perceived privacy, not surprisingly. And, and people talk about the distraction of hearing other people on the phone yeah. in particular. Where you're only hearing half the conversation, which is really annoying, as we all know, from uh, trains and buses and, and so on. And I don't know quite why that's so annoying. Maybe because you're constantly trying to figure out what the other person is saying. So my one of my colleagues moved into my section yesterday and he said, sorry, I'm just moving in, and then started quite a loud Zoom conversation. And I passive-aggressively went, 
I'm moving to your desk because I'm trying to write and this is quite complex. Uh, I, I can hear you. And then I moved to his desk and I realised the reason he'd moved away was he was having a Zoom call with other people in his department. And so now I was stuck between one half of the conversation and the other half of the conversation. It was even worse. It's it's very I, I don't know whose idea open plan office is were where that even comes from was it a 50s thing or something a 60s maybe i don't know i mean there's got to be some metric by which it's it's an improvement because you see other people's faces i guess that's that's probably going to be a big part of it so the crick do you know the crick building it's the crick institute the crick institute right is this architectural award-winning building i mean it won some reba award it's it's fated among architects Mm. I think you shouldn't give the architectural prize to a building until you've put the people who use it in it Mm -hmm. and got their feedback because it turns out they made loads of really open plan spaces Mm. for scientists to collaborate because in an architect's mind, this is what they were doing. Great, everyone chats, oh, my work, your work, blah, 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 eureka. Turns out scientists need peace and quiet to think. And people were just kind of hiding in rooms where they could just have some quiet to actually do any work. Which is, again, understanding the psychology of people. I mean, there's that lovely work, isn't there, where if you've got a courtyard or something, you don't put in the paths. What you do is wait until people have walked across it many times and you can actually see the routes they're taking and then you put a path on there. What are they called? Lines of desire or something? Oh, maybe. But they should be doing the same at offices. Um, I mean, what I do think is helpful are those kind of water cooler conversations I have with colleagues when you walk past them in the corridor or something and bump into them. And and that doesn't happen with remote working. I think there's definitely a a climb down in terms of uh, creativity there. But the idea of being in a space where you can hear other people and get distracted it's a big thumbs down from open plan offices for us. Yeah, yeah, not not a fan. But it, these things go in cycles. And so I say optimistically, and I reckon they'll just put some walls back up in a bit. So we have looked at a vast amount of psychology in terms of the workplace. We've looked at what makes for a good interview. We've looked at likability. We've looked at meetings and round and square tables. Tables, and importantly, getting yourself in the middle of everything. And we've looked at the downside of open plan offices and what makes for a good leader. I've basically just had a rant about open plan offices. Can we just, and finally, Mm. we've had a question from Ian about pets in the workplace. Has there ever been empirical research investigating the impact of having a dog in the workplace? Uh, I haven't seen any research on it. Of course, there are therapy dogs that lower stress and so on. As with everything, I think it's going to depend on the dog. Yeah. But I think if you've got a placid, friendly dog and you've got a group of people that like placid, friendly dogs, it's difficult to imagine a negative impact there. So under those circumstances, big thumbs up for dogs in the workplace. Podimo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podimo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podimo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it tell your friends you did why should you be the only ones to suffer although it does help others find us and don't forget to subscribe thanks bye bye bye